Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the People's COVID Inquiry and our sixth session in Equalities and Discrimination. I am Sonia Adesawa. I am an NHS doctor and campaigner and a member of Keeper NHS Public, the campaigning organisation that has called this inquiry. Now, for me personally, the slogan that we heard, we're all in it together, always ran hollow from the start, as it was very clear that, you know, as the cliche goes, yes, we all face the same storm, but we were certainly not in the same boat. Black people and Asian people have been catching COVID and have been dying from COVID um, at disproportionately higher rates than their white counterparts. We know that women have faced um, a disproportionate greater social and economic impact from COVID. And we know that it is the poor women and ethnic minority women who have been hit hardest with the economic harm. And of course, many of these appalling disparities that we've seen in COVID-related harm and mortality were not unexpected. And that's why today we are exploring what was or what should have been done to mitigate these harms and protect vulnerable groups. And crucially, we will be exploring what is happening now, what needs to be done now to address these systemic inequalities that have been exposed throughout this pandemic. Now, as we have said previously, we support calls for an official public inquiry. Um, and it's rather you know, unfortunate that at present the government don't put this as a priority. And I do feel that the events over the past week have made many more people um, feel sceptical as to whether this government will be capable of doing a truly transparent um, and honest um, reflection of, of their management of this crisis. And finally, we are extremely grateful to our wonderful panel, to all the witnesses who have agreed to take part of this, um, to appear in this um, over our nine sessions. Our witnesses, as you've seen, have been are either experts in their field or citizen witnesses who are giving testimony from their personal lived experience. And then we are really grateful to you for participating. Um, and as in previous, previous um, events, the panel will take into account questions that you have sent in in advance. This event is being live streamed over Key Punches Public's Facebook, Twitter um, and YouTube. If you um, would like live captioning, this is available clicking the, the CC, so the closed caption icons at the bottom of the screen. And um, you can also look out for our accessibility guide in the chat. Links will be posted in the chat throughout the session, including to links to our crowdfunder um, and also registration links for our next session and newsletter signups. The session is going to be recorded so you can watch it back and there will be a five minute comfort break in the middle. So finally, um, I would like to introduce our wonderful panel. Um, we are extremely grateful for our panel chair um, as doesn't need any more introduction but you're I'm sure you've um have been enjoying um the chairing of Michael Mansfield QC he is an internationally renowned human rights lawyer currently involved in the Grenfell inquiry and he's represented the Stephen Lawrence family involved in the Hillsborough families and many many others so extremely grateful to all the work that he's put into this inquiry 
We also have with us on our panel, Professor Nina Modi, who is Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial and is also the President of the UK Medical Women's Federation. We have Dr. Tallulah Oni. She is a, an urban epidemiologist and public health physician at the Medical Research Council Epidemiology Unit, University of Cambridge. Dr. Jackie Davis, a NHS consultant, radiologist, and an author, and also a BMA council member. However, she is appearing here in a personal capacity, as are all our panel. So welcome to all of you again. Thank you for being with us today. Um, and I will hand over to Michael Mansfield QC. Michael, you're, you're muted, Michael. How's that? Very good. I do apologize. I'll take the full responsibility, probably my fault, for not unmuting. It's the first time it's happened, but probably won't be the last. Anyway, if you forgive me, just to go back, tonight's going to be a very different occasion to the ones we've had before. I'll explain why in a moment. Before I get there, I just want to amplify something that Sonia has just said. In other words, the government making a, an inquiry not a priority. Well, it, it's far worse than that because we've been predicting, and so far we've been right, they'll never call one. And the reason is that uh, the Prime Minister announced uh, the possibility of one last July, and then he didn't do anything about it. Not a thing until he was challenged a few weeks ago. And of course, if you're gonna have a public inquiry of the judicial kind, you have to make a lot of preparations and it takes a lot of time and it can't start next week. Whatever various other organizations are pressing for, it's not gonna happen next week. In fact, because he hasn't got a timeline, it's pretty clear he doesn't want one. Furthermore, there are some other interesting changes that they're making in their responses. And that is that the word judicial isn't any longer one of the factors they're taking into account. So now they're just talking about the possibility uh, which has no framework to it whatsoever of a public inquiry of some kind. So you may rest assured that probably, or almost certainly, this inquiry, public as it is, uh, and with respect to the people, is going to be the only one that's viable. Uh, and of course, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> you just pause for a minute. I do it now because, you know, we have... Um, other problems besetting this government, which seem to take priority over the pandemic. Cash for cushions and wallpaper gate. As soon as that kind of issue comes up and there's a problem over his flat in 10 Downing Street, then suddenly out of nowhere, there are three inquiries already up and running with a fourth mooted. So that's four inquiries. I'm not saying they shouldn't happen, but it just shows you that when they want to inquire into something, they will. Uh, not that Boris is too happy about those, I've no doubt. So therefore, <clears throat> the question of a public inquiry is of extreme importance. And a lot of other people within the last week, the Institute of Government, for example, <clears throat> has added their voice, uh, as have other medical institutions. So it's overwhelming, the clamour for a judicial public inquiry properly prepared further down the line. So enough of that. In relation to tonight, a little bit different, 
because we do try and do it along the lines of a judicial inquiry, even though we don't have all the powers of a judicial inquiry. However, tonight, because uh, counsel to the inquiry has suffered the one thing I think barristers really fear the most, they lose their voice. Ah, so she can't ask the questions. Uh, although she's written some out and uh, we're all very conscious of that for which we thank her. But at the same time, therefore, we, we've had to devise a different method, which is sometimes employed at public inquiries, judicial inquiries as well, where there's a panel. So the intention here is for me to introduce the witness and ask maybe the first two questions. And then, of course, there are three very erudite panel members, all of which have uh, medical experience. So they're going to take over some of the questioning as well. And I hope you'll find that uh, a sort of change, at least, that makes it uh, just as interesting as it would be if you just have counsel doing it. Uh, there is one or, two, one or two other matters I just want to mention because they, they come up from time to time. <clears throat> and that is, although that's going to be the format tonight, one of the things I think that concerns viewers is the time given or allotted to a witness. Well, when you've only got two and a bit hours and you've got four witnesses, you can work it out for yourselves. Roughly, it's half an hour a witness. However, there are occasions when a witness will perhaps take only 15 minutes. We had one of those a, a couple of weeks ago. Or a witness can take twice as long. Uh, this is not because we favour witnesses, but we listen carefully. Uh, and it's you will understand in life some people, you're probably thinking that about me at the moment, some people take far longer than they need to to say something, but they're trying to do it in different ways. Other people are far shorter in the way they explain something. So that, that's why timing of witnesses uh, can be uh, variable, but we, we try to give a, an equal weight to the substance. And remember, they've also uh, put in reports and statements in most cases. Finally, this, as has been mentioned, we do incorporate uh, questions. Now, the thing is, we encourage, because it's the people's inquiry, this wouldn't happen. This would not happen in a judicial inquiry. We encourage the public to interact. So, for example, we have a lot of questions for tonight. However, although they're sent in tonight, they're not all relevant tonight. Some of them are relevant to sessions we've already had. Some of them are relevant to sessions we're going to have. There is one question that uh, will arise tonight that we are going to try and put into the mix as it were. So having said that's a rather longer introduction than I normally do but uh, hopefully you will enjoy and find it in as informative uh, as normal. So may I call myself this time the first witness who's Dr Mary Ann Stevenson. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, <clears throat> I, I want to, it'll become clear why, I would like to begin by asking you a little bit about, uh, I hope you don't see this as a, uh, as a strange question, as where you've been before you get to the present situation. Because you've had some, uh, you, you've got some interesting experience which bears upon the questions that I want to ask. And I think the, the public should know exactly where, where, what, and what organisations you've worked for, besides the present situation. So you, ha you have a, a law qualification, which is of interest. And uh, it, if you can say yes to these, because it's all going to be transcribed. Yes. Yeah, yes. Fine. 
And, and I think it goes without saying in all of the cases tonight, and I'm not going to repeat it as it would happen in an inquiry, that <clears throat> you are here to help us and provide us with as truthful account as you can from your memory of the uh, issues that have arisen in the pandemic. So you, you have a law qualification, but uh, you've also uh, been a director of the Fawcett Society. So if you could just explain that in a brief sentence. Yes, yeah, so the Fawcett Society is um, sort of leading organisation campaigning for equality between women and men in the UK. Um, I was director from um, 1998 to 2002. And uh, that's not the only one, because you also are commissioner on the Women's National Commission. Can you also explain that? Because it has quite a long history, so I think back to 1969. Yes, yeah, so the Women's National Commission was set up to act as the official advisory body to government on the views of the women's voluntary sector. Um, and it was closed in 2010 in the um, bonfire of the Quangos by the coalition government. Um, I was a commissioner twice on the Women's National Commission, and um, both when I was at the Fawcett Society and um, more recently in the run-up to 2010. So you've been involved, before we get to the current situation, because <coughs> you're um, a director of the United Kingdom Women's Budget Group. Well, I'll come to that in one second. So. You've had decades of experience in this field of the impact of you know, uh, inequalities on women in particular. Yes. I mean, I've worked in, in the women's sector um, for over 25 years. Right. So let's bring it up to present. I've mentioned your current directorship. What does the budget group, the women's budget group, have as its objective? So we analyse um, economic policy for its gendered impact, for the impact on women and men. Um, and we also propose alternative policies that we think would create more gender equality. Um, and we promote an approach called gender responsive budgeting, which is an approach used around the world to analyse budgets, but broader economic policy. Um, and again, in order to change policy to make it better. So it's the material that you gather and garner is again um, provided to government, whatever government there is of the day. Is that right? Yes. I mean, we produce reports and briefings. Um, we send them to government, um, to opposition parties. We work, you know, we're a non-party organisation. We work cross-party. Um, but we also provide evidence that um, civil society organisations can use in their in their campaigning and advocacy. And most of our research draws on um, academic work carried out by our members, um, many of whom are economists, but other social scientists, people with frontline experience and um, people with uh, lived experience. So what uh, then bring it really up to date, because this year in January, um, you published a report. Is that right? Yes. So what's one of a series of reports and briefings that we've published on the impact of COVID on women um, was called Where Women Stand at the start of 2021, which was really looking back over what had happened since the start of the pandemic and trying to bring together all the evidence that we were aware of, both our own work and other people's, um, on the gendered and other equalities impacts that COVID had had. Now, of course, <laughs> short of actually uh, reading out the report, which would take a little time, I am going to ask, because uh, maybe many, many people 
have not read it, but it, it's important for women and, and all of us, because, I mean, it's not just we all bear a responsibility. It, are you able to give us a, an idea, a sort of sum, a summation of what the main findings of that report are, recommendations? Um, yes. So while we know that um, men have been more likely to die from COVID, we also know that women have been hit harder by the social and economic impact of the pandemic. So women have been more likely to be furloughed. Um, they've been more likely to have to, have to carry out um, vastly increased um, unpaid work, particularly care work, with the closure of schools and nurseries, but also the crisis in social care. Um, they're at greater risk of redundancy because the sectors they work in are those that have been most badly affected by the pandemic and the, the, the closures as a result of the pandemic. Um, more likely to be um, in debt um, and particularly problem debt, um, more likely to be living in poverty um, and more likely to, vastly more likely to have experienced an increase in um, domestic violence. Um, and I mean, there's a whole series of recommendations in all sorts of different areas. I don't know if you want me to talk through all of those or wait till. Well, we can... Yes, no, I think we, we can meld it in with, with the questions that are going to come because um, I'm going to ask this question. I mean, all those, all, all those instances that you've just uh, exemplified i mean these are in a sense pre-exist the pandemic for women is that right yes i mean covid exacerbated existing inequalities um but most of these these inequalities were there already there were problems that that we already knew about and the government already knew about exactly so these could have been anticipated. What measures, again, it may be difficult, so there's so many different facets to it. What, do, what measures do you think, if you had been in government at the beginning, should have been taken from the start, major, major policy directives and so on? Well, I mean, there's two things. First of all, learning from experience of previous pandemics. So we know there's been extensive research on the impact of Ebola and um, other pandemics that these have had gendered impacts. And indeed, there were academics, Dr. Claire Wenhan at um, uh, the London School of Economics, um, raised these concerns right at the beginning last year because she's she's an expert in this field um, and was told, you know, London is not Liberia, we won't have the same problems. So that's one thing they should have learned from. The second thing was to be aware of the pre-existing inequalities and what that would mean. So we knew that women were more likely to be poor, we knew that women were more likely to work in sectors that would have to close as a result of the pandemic. We knew that women were more likely to work um, in health and social care. Um, we knew that women carried out 60% more unpaid work, particularly care work than men, and therefore were more likely to do more of that work if schools and nurseries were closed. All of that was entirely predictable. So, uh, I mean, just going back to part of the question, and that is if, if all of this was predictable, uh, which is obvious from what you're saying it, it was, what what should a government have actually done about it? To take... How do you deal with all these? Do you, do you just raise an economic base to a high level so that every woman is supported economically in a way they never have been? Or how do you do this? So what you do is you think about, um, when you think about closing schools and nurseries, you think from the start about what that will mean on women's ability to carry out paid work. 
and for example you introduce the right to um, uh, furlough for childcare reasons which did come in later on but came in late and wasn't heavily publicized you publicize that to employers you give parents the right to request furlough you actively encourage both parents to take part-time furlough so rather than one partner being furloughed and out of the labour market altogether. Both partners can be, and that could be shared. You look at things like um, statutory sick pay, um, so that uh, people are able to self-isolate. We know that the majority of those not entitled to statutory sick pay are women, um, and you address that. You recognise that people on insecure um, part-time contracts and zero-hours contracts are possibly more likely to be made redundant than to be furloughed because it's cheaper for their employer to just not give them shifts than it is to go through the process of applying for furlough money. Um, and so you take action to provide protection for that. You ensure that your um, the support given to self, the self-employed um, when you're calculating average earnings over the three years before the pandemic actually allows for periods of maternity leave. So the moment that the calculation that the government introduced if you'd been on maternity leave for a year of those three years your earnings would have your average earnings would have fallen by a third you could simply discount periods of maternity leave for the purposes of that calculation you put more money into um, uh, domestic violence services from the start um, which again services were calling for from the beginning um, but I think most importantly you actually carry out an equality impact assessment of all the policies that you introduce and you ensure that the groups that are advising you like um, uh, SAGE um, have include within them um, people with expertise on gender and gender and pandemics um, I mean, this is no insult to SAGE. It's not their fault that the, the members of SAGE gave the best advice they could. They were not experts in gender. Those people should have been around the table. And you have to have that thinking built into your planning from the start so that you avoid some of the mistakes that the government made. You mentioned in that answer the, the question of impact assessment. But of course, there's also a prior one to that risk assessments in relation to what is what could happen in other words if you're anticipating something you will make a risk assessment of how much impact that might have that <coughs> so would be either way assessment of the policy you know you're sitting down to think what are the policies that we produce in response to covid and the first thing that you would do as you say would be to carry out a risk assessment and now that did, would involve listening to previous evidence did the government as far as you're aware do that not as far as i'm aware and as far as you're aware, I mean, what was their general? You've already given one response, which wasn't to you personally, but, uh, you know, we're, we're not Liberia. It's not going to happen here, which seems, you know, has all the worst elements of a politician to say that. But um, as far as you're concerned, I mean, government response to, uh, to, to, to the reports that you put in, the information you give, because it's very detailed and very sophisticated, their response to you has been? Nothing. We haven't we haven't heard anything back. I mean, I think if you look across the women's sector, the women's sector was trying from very, very early on, from before the first lockdown, to raise concerns from when we were looking at what was happening in Italy and China to raise concerns. And um, the government was not engaging. Now, there are areas where they did, you know, the furlough scheme, for example, protected 
large numbers of jobs, um, women's jobs as well as men's jobs, but we can see from other countries like America where those schemes weren't in place, it's been mainly women who've lost jobs in the US, um, vast, vast numbers of women. So there was some protection through that, but I don't think that was a, a deliberately thought through um, gendered response. I think that was just a fortunate byproduct. Now we're still in the pandemic and they're going to be, if you, if you like, entrails and possibly Hopefully not, but resurgences at some point, maybe. But <clears throat> what is the main deficiency for women at the moment? You, you say there have been some improvements, but I mean, has the position fundamentally changed or not fundamentally changed? And there are really other things that they're still not doing. Well, I think one of the problems is what happens um, in September. We're facing a cliff edge with the end of the furlough scheme and the end of the £20 uplift in universal credit. So one of the problems that we had, one of the underlying problems, was the um, relative lack of generosity in our social security system, and which means that people who've lost jobs have been pushed into poverty. And some of that was mitigated by this £20 uplift. That's ending in September. Um, so the government needs to take action to actually introduce a social security system that acts as a genuine safety net. You know, any one of us could face a job loss at any time in our lives, and we need a, a system that is there to protect us. They need to think um, what happens beyond the end of furlough um, and how you can create jobs for those that have lost them. At the moment, the government's um, uh, Build Back Better proposals are all about investment in construction schemes, um, some of which are, are, are important and needed, um, but actually are unlikely to provide jobs for people who've lost work in um, retail, hospitality, the beauty sector, for example. Um, so we proposed uh, an investment in social care um, and done modelling showing that the same amount of money invested in care could create um, nearly three times as many jobs as that money invested in construction, even if you paid um, care workers um, at a higher rate than they're currently paid. Um, so there's that. There's also things that go, go broader, particularly around um, test, trace and isolate. And the fact that we've got real weaknesses in the isolate bit because of the gaps in the social security system and particularly in statutory sick pay, um, which leaves many people with no choice but to carry on going to work, um, even when they're ill, um, because they can't otherwise afford to keep a roof over their heads. Um, and that's something that I mean, should have been sorted out a year ago, but it's not too late to sort it out now. Well, the final question I've got at the moment, then I'll ask other panel members if they want to ask you anything, is that it got a lot of publicity for a time. And that was the <clears throat> risk to women at home from violent partners, uh, which seemed there was at one point an astronomic increase in that. Now, what, what, what is the latest situation as far as you're aware? Has it evened out? Has things calmed down? Or... or as uh, the legacy uh, a big one? I think the legacy is a big one. I mean, there was particular issues in lockdown because people were trapped at home with their abusers, which meant that there was nowhere else to go. There was no way of get, getting away from a situation. And, and that made things particularly bad. But there was a, um, 
a report that came out today from um, the Women's Resource Centre, which is a kind of umbrella body for women's organisations. And they said of the organisations they surveyed, most of which were supporting women who experienced violence, had seen a 79% increase, or 79% said that they'd seen an increase in demand. Um, and um, over 50% said they'd seen an increase in demand of women with, with complex needs, um, including violence, but they hadn't had the resources to meet that level of demand. Um, so, you know, violence against women pre-existed COVID. This is not something that's caused by COVID. Um, it's widespread and massively underreported. Um, but again, particularly the lockdown made things worse. Exacerbated, yes. Well, then I'm going to uh, ask fellow panel members if anyone else has got a question for you. I'm looking to see if... Oh, I have to... <laughs> OK. Uh, <clears throat> right. Uh, no, go hey, ahead. Yes, do go ahead, yeah. Oh, Thank you very much. Oops. Marianne, that was, that, that was a very um, powerful witness statement in your... Uh, You've emphasised quite rightly that, of course, women's inequalities have pre-existed before COVID and COVID has exacerbated them. So the, the, let's look forward now about, and you've mentioned things that could be done immediately. But what I'd be interested in your views on are um, that from, it, it, it is very likely that we will go back to the old ways of doing things. And if one's thinking about radical change, the question I want to put to you is about from a fiscal policy perspective, shouldn't it be possible to actually incorporate into our measures of recovery and economic success and economic resilience the, uh, to assign some sort of monetary value, not necessarily in terms of money paid out, but recognition of the unremunerated work that women tend to do the major part of. So in other words, isn't there some way of introducing into our measures of economic resilience and success the unremunerated work that is largely done by women, which is so essential for it to be visible, because of course it helps keep the economy running. But it is it is not visible, it's not seen, it's not recognised, it's not counted. So there are systems of satellite accounts which would include things like putting a value on um, unpaid work. Um, and that can be that can be really important. Um, what I think we need to think about doing longer term is what um, Professor Diane Elson talks about, which is um, recognise, reduce and redistribute unpaid work. So it's not just about recognising, it's also about reducing it, which is through the provision of childcare, decent adult social care and so on. And we need to redistribute it between women and men. And that means thinking about um, how those norms of who is responsible for care are set. And one of the things that we know is that they're often set um, within couples when a child is first born, that, you know, um, couples go into parenthood with an intention of being more equal parents than their, their, their own parents were. Um, but our leave system in this country, which is a very long period of leave for mothers and very, very little leave for fathers. I mean, there is transferable um, parental leave, but we know that doesn't really work very effectively. Um, creates this idea that, that women are the primary parent um, and that um, men are at best sort of the assistant. 
Um, and that plays out throughout the child's life. So if we want to change that, one of the things we need to do is to change our, our leave system in order to kind of change those gendered norms. And if we if we don't change the distribution of, of unpaid care within the home, it's going to be very, very difficult to get equality outside the home because that unpaid care is at the root of so much inequality outside the home. Thank you very much indeed. I think we've, what we've made crystal clear is that there are actions, tools and measures that could be put in place. And this, this is not a situation where we simply have to wring our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. There is a lot that we can do with, about it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Professor. Ah, yes, Dr. Davis, please. Thanks. Thank you for that. Um, I'm sure it won't have escaped people's notice that there was a lot on the news today about mental health and depression. And that the people who've come really badly out of this are, guess what, young women, and particularly young, uh, young women, women in general and young women, because all the factors have been against them. And I don't see anybody making that connection. Um, in the news at the moment, that that, that um, everything that you've been talking about, of course, has, has caused these mental health problems. And um, and how do you think that we can support women going forward? Because, you know, when women are depressed, then it's bad for families, it's bad for everybody. So it seems like a real challenge at the moment. The Young, the young Women's Trust has done some really, really good and important work on the impacts of, of COVID on young women specifically. And you're absolutely right. I mean, young women are far more likely to work in retail and hospitality, for example. They're far more likely to have lost their jobs. Um, and we need ongoing support. We need more money into mental health services. We know that, that mental health was a kind of Cinderella service even before the pandemic. Um, we have a lot of talk about, you know, the importance of recognising mental health and being open about mental health, but far less resource actually put in to providing support when people need it. Um, and young women and particularly, you know, girls um, are hit by the, you know, the real underfunding of the child and adolescent mental health services where, you know, anybody who's had any contact with them knows um, how threadbare those services can often be and how difficult it can be to get support. So, I mean, I think it's a case of recognising that we need proper investment in those services. And as you say, that should be seen as investment because it's a benefit not only to the people who receive services, but to the wider society if we all have good mental health. Yeah. <laughs> um, a final question, I think there's certainly time for that. So, Dr Ernie, please. Thank you, Dr. Stevenson, for the really excellent uh, statement and responses. Just, I just want to pick up on a point that you made and and that Professor Modi asked about, which is around um, both learning from others and also looking forwards. So you set out very clearly the kind of things that would need to be done looking forwards to address that. It's very easy for for government and other people to say, well, this is all well and good, but it's 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 a tall ask. It's not it's not possible, or it's 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 too challenging. So I wondered whether, in your experience, whether there you could cite any promising practice or best practice of places that have adopted the kinds of things that you have um, that you have uh, alluded to, because I think it is quite important to to recognise that what you're saying is not a pie in the sky idea and things that are actually practically practical and implementable. So do you have any examples that you could share? Yes, I mean, if you 
if you think about uh, equality impact assessments and gender budgeting and that sort of approach, um, large numbers of Scandinavian countries have adopted this. Um, it's been um, widely used in South Africa. It's been, you know, it's used in many different countries around the world. <laughs> in terms of things like leave policy, again, we can look to, you know, the Scandinavian countries, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, all have far more equitable sharing of leave policies. But also, I think if you're looking at the, the sort of scale of investment that's needed, because that's the other thing where government says, you know, we can't afford this. I'd say two things. First of all, you look at what Joe Biden's doing in America at the moment and the scale of investment that's happening there, there and the recognition that this is a moment to make a change and to do things differently shows that it is, is possible to do that. You know, you can, you can say, actually, why do we have these historically low levels of corporation tax? We need corporations to pay enough money to support these services. And the second thing, I think, is to think back to the, the foundation of the, the welfare state and the NHS. So, you know, the welfare state and the NHS came out of the Second World War at a point when the UK economy was in a terrible situation. You know, we've been through war the large parts of the country were you know devastated um, we had huge levels of debt and yet a government decided not to further cut things back and to pay down the debt but to actually invest in the future and to say we don't want to go back to the way things were before we want to do things differently and I think we need to see this as a similar moment we need to say that Covid has not only created these problems, but really highlighted a lot of problems that existed long before this. You know, the, the endemic structural racism in society, huge inequalities between rich and poor, inequalities between women and men and so on, and that this is an opportunity to do things differently. You know, the economy is not just a given. Um, it's not a sort of fact of nature that we have to live with. The economy is a human construct and we can construct it in a different way. And this is the moment to do that. So that's what I'd say. Well, what you say is very poignant. So may we take this opportunity to say thank you very much for your time tonight. And we wish you well. Thank you, Dr. Stevens. Thank you very much. I'm going to call <coughs> the next witness, although Dr. Davis is going to ask the lead questions on this. It's a professor of primary care, Professor Kavlich Gunti, and he's a primary care diabetes and vascular medicine at the University of Leicester. He's a member of the government advisory body SAGE, which I'm sure many have heard of uh, uh, on um, the media generally. And he's chair of SAGE ethnicity subgroup and a member of independent SAGE, which we have also heard a great deal about. So welcome professor. Thank you. And I'm going to ask Dr. Davis if he wouldn't mind asking some initial questions. Thank you. And thank you, Professor, for joining us this evening. Um, you've written a huge amount. I think you sent us 90 links or some such to, to, to papers um, about the disproportionate impact of a pandemic on ethnic minority groups. Um, do you think, you talk about six different factors that have generated these inequalities. Do you think for the audience, you could list them and distill a little bit, a bit, a bit about each one so we can understand what your concerns have been? Thank you. Sure, I mean, this is really a framework that uh, Vital, uh, who is the lead author and the group uh, developed 
for uh, um, conducting research in the inequalities uh, due to COVID. You could use this framework for anything. So in terms of uh, COVID, it could be a differential exposure because um, um, ethnic minorities may be exposed to more because of their occupation or housing. It could be differential vulnerability because they're living in an environment that puts them at high risk, uh, air quality, etc. or could be they, they've got uh, more um, comorbidities. So ethnic minorities have more diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure. It could be uh, disease consequences because of the conditions that they have or because they have uh, poor access to care and quality of care potentially. Um, there's differential consequences uh, such as working conditions, uh, uh, level of impairment through stopping work if they were ill. There could be differential effectiveness of uh, control measures such as messaging because of language, because of resources, because of, for example, uh, vaccine hesitancy. And finally, uh, differential control measures such as working conditions, uh, access to protection, uh, uh, personal protection. Uh, and not following advice because of uh, stigmatization. Um, so these are the six sort of frameworks that uh, we developed and, and have communicated. Thank you. And do you, um, really, two questions. Which, which, would you put those in any sort of order about importance? I know that's a difficult question. And um, could they have been foreseen and could the government have done anything about it before so many BAME people died at ratios, you know, which are quite shocking, really? So, uh, first of all, um, can we prioritise them? I think it's really difficult to prioritise. The, the impact of COVID in, has been highest in um, people of ethnic minorities, age, occupation, people with comorbidities. So it's not just an impact on ethnic minorities but it has a disproportionate impact on ethnic minorities and it is a complex area. There's so many factors as I've just talked to that are playing a part. Um, but I think if uh, I was to uh, look at it now from some of the work that we've done it, and others have done, it shows that certainly the first two, the exposure, um, living conditions, occupations, they're certainly playing a part of some, some of the good big data studies that are coming out from the UK. Uh, and uh, differential vulnerability to, to infection. So uh, ethnic minorities have a, a lot more uh, chronic diseases, as I mentioned, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart disease. These are all associated with worse outcomes, um, both in ethnic minority and uh, white populations. The other one that's coming through clearly is obesity as well. And ethnic minorities are more obese uh, compared to white populations. That, that, again, puts them at risk. So I'd probably say the first two where we have the data for. Your second question was regarding could we have a, 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 could we have a, a seen this coming? Well, I don't think so. So what happened in the way the pandemic unfolded was we initially had all the reports on China. Then we had reports from uh, Italy and then from uh, Spain. And none of them reported anything uh, regarding ethnic disparities. It was, we started getting the first cases in February and I was alerted on the 1st of April. I put a tweet out on the 1st of April because I have friends who work in intensive care unit and they said, Cambridge, you do research. Have you seen anything like this? Have you seen ethnic minorities being disproportionately affected? And we weren't aware of it at the time. So we were definitely caught off the guard. And that's when we put the tweet out and 
even then people said we were dis, you know, uh, we were scaremongering. Um, and then I think a few days later, the ICNARC data, this is uh, from the intensive care unit, those data came out and they did show that um, ethnic minorities were disproportionately affected. In, uh, so overall, 14% of UK population are, is of non-white ethnicity. And the ICNARC data showed that 30% of those who were admitted to the intensive care unit were uh, of non-white ethnicity. So it did certainly, that was the first signal we had at the time, and that was, as I said, beginning of April. And and that's very interesting. And what do you what do you think that once that information was out, what do you think the government could have done that they that they didn't do? I mean, for instance, it was very interesting listening to them saying, um, "You must stay at home and don't and don't use the same bathroom." I mean, that just seemed to be completely out of touch with the way that people lived, particularly in big multi generational households. So, so what should they have done that they that they didn't do to protect um, uh, in the minority ethnic groups? I, I think um, this this was the, the communication that came out um, wasn't tailored enough. Um, we know that ethnic minorities do need tailored messaging. It needs to be uh, personalised. It needs to ha- be accessible. It needs to be culturally adapted. Um, all of that wasn't happening at the beginning. Um, and we were hearing regular news. We were hearing um, regular uh, conferences uh, on the news, uh, uh, and all of them were in English. And they weren't accessible to most of the minority population, especially the deprived population, who has been the hardest hit. Um, and just uh, if I can ask you one more question, I'm sure my colleagues will have some too. And um, we're not the only country with a with a big BAME community. So how, have other countries done any better? or have they all had the same problems and, and failed to deal with them? So, so we've looked at all the studies. So we've, there's been about 50 studies when we last looked at it that have looked at ethnic disparities um, globally. But majority of those data are coming from UK and US. And UK has probably contributed to most of the evidence. And the reason is we have the best databases in the world that, that, that are linked. Um, but all of them, from the US, the healthcare system is different as well. As you know, we have free access system in the UK, uh, while uh, it's not so, the case in the US. But they had more uh, impact in terms of the black communities and the Latino communities, while in the UK mainly it's the black minority ethnic groups and the South Asian groups. And I suppose I would just follow that up by saying, did they manage to protect them better than we did or did everybody make the same mistakes? I, I, I think that they, their outcomes for them are a lot worse because access to care was difficult for ethnic minority, poor ethnic minority groups. Well, we did not have that issue here. Okay, thank you. i give you back to my colleagues on the panel, perhaps. Well, I'm going to defer to the other two members first. I've got a question or two. But uh, have either of the other two panel members got a question or two? Uh, no. No? Okay, that's fine. First. No, I, I'm very happy to come in afterwards, but please go ahead. Oh, all right. Um, a, a question which I, I want to ask, and it, I don't want it to sound academic and scholastic. Uh, I, want, I want to really deal with terms that are used here, because interestingly, in the... Um, interchange that we've just had, terms are used as if they are interchangeable. Now, the terms I'm talking about relate to ethnicity, because the other term that's actually become 
much more favoured in, 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 in the recent year or so, the Bain community term is used a great deal. Now, from the papers that you've co-authored, there's a clear different perspective, and you've talked about the United States already. In other words, these terms, uh, are, well, ethnicity certainly, has a different perspective in the USA than it does in the United Kingdom, with different connotations. So are these terms interchangeable? Does it matter? And what do you think are the crucial factors? Sorry, it's three questions rolled into one. First of all, ethnicity, we tend to use the, the term ethnicity in the UK. This is a, a, a term that's used for a social group of people belonging. Uh, and it could be either self-identified. So most of the time it is self-identified. So you must have done all censuses. We self-identify ourselves or identified others. Uh, and it's uh, in respect to either culture or other factors such as language, diet, religion, while race is uh, slightly different, race is uh, basically a, a group a person belongs to because of uh, a mixture of either physical characteristics such as skin or hair or where they come from, their ancestry, geography. It's probably more related to the genetics uh, aspects than the cultural aspects than we look at ethnicity. In terms of the terminology of BAME or BME, Black Asian Minority Ethnic Populations or Black Minority Ethnic Populations, we have been using those terms for a number of years, but recently, especially since we've had the Black Lives Matter, we've had COVID, um, there's been a lot of discussions about uh, being called a Bane, and most people are saying, I'm not Bane, I have an identity. And it's very difficult, and this is a moving field, and, and something that we looked at, and we, we did a Twitter poll of 7,700 people uh, replied, and the one that most people um, preferred was uh, ethnic minority groups because being really uh, uh, first of all terminology it's it, it, it people don't like it secondly it does miss a number of other ethnic groups uh, there are Arabs there are Irish there's Gypsies all of those are are not included when we say it's the Black and Asian minority ethnic groups. Thank you. Well, that certainly does uh, uh, clarify matters to some extent, and and also. Uh, as, a per as a personal approach, I don't like using the word BAME. It's a sort of label which becomes an easy one, trips off the tongue, but glosses over the distinction. So thank you very much for that. I've got another question, but this one, this time it's it's not mine. It's come in from a member of the public. So um, I I'm not sure the extent to which you, you may be able to answer this. And and if you can't, please, please say so. But um, I'm going to, to read... Uh, what has been sent in uh, to us by Jan Coburg of Guildford. What could have been done to reduce the risk of hospital-acquired COVID and what lessons can we learn from other countries in reducing hospital-acquired COVID? Now, is that something you can deal with? I deal with it to, to an extent, yes. So, so this is called nosocomal infection where... Um, Could you just repeat that? I didn't quite get it. Nosocomal infection where right. people, people get it uh, from the hospital. I think uh, um, there are a number of things that uh, could have been done, um, such as uh, personal protective equipment was a key thing. Um, I, I don't think we were uh, really aware of how infective uh, and transmissible uh, COVID was when we first started. Um, but certainly, uh, 
a good quality PPE would have helped. Um, uh, I think uh, in terms of now we've got testing of healthcare staff on a regular basis. If we'd had that right at the beginning, that would have helped. And obviously immunization uh, is something that's helping now as well. Again, this is not a question sent in by the public. I'll come, I'll come in one second to, to other panel members. But it's something which is um, lurking in the background all the way through. No, no other witness has been asked this yet, but I'm going to ask it of you in case it's something with which you're familiar, because PPE and its provision was sorely lacking for a long time for, well, it's not just frontline workers, but patients and so on. So, but PPE for frontline workers. I mean, the, the government has a legal duty under the National Health Act to provide this. And there have been plainly severe um, deficiencies in, in the early days and possibly still now where people were having to wear, you know, in hospitals, bin liners, this kind of thing. And in some cases of transport workers had to provide their own. So it, it seems to me that, that is this an aspect? In other words, the legal duty owed by a government to its population uh, under that act, as well as the Human Rights Act. Is that an aspect you can deal with or is it something that that's hasn't crossed your research? No, that's not something I would be able to comment on, not my expertise. Mine's mainly been on the epidemiology. Uh, well, then, can I just go back to the facts, factual basis? The non-provision of PPE, how severe a problem do you rate it? So this has been covered well, uh, quite a lot by the BMA, and we have our chair, who, who I think is from the BMA, or, or an individual is from the BMA. BMA um, did uh, raise this hugely right at the beginning because of the provision of PPE. There was a huge shortage of PPE, so certainly this did play a role uh, in terms of uh, possible transmission, not just only to the patients, but also the increased risk to the healthcare professionals as well. Okay. Right. I know that um, <clears throat> one of the, uh, Dr. Oni has a question to ask you. Thank you, um, Professor Kunti, for your for your statement. I'd like to pick up on one of the uh, categories of risk that you mentioned around vulnerability and just project us forward. So, you know, you mentioned about the comorbidities um, that increase the risk of of ill health, which um, and and the the disproportionate burden of that in in certain aspect um, uh, group population groups. Now we know for these a lot of these comorbidities, they often thought of individual as individual things, what people should do, you know, and 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 there's that kind of blaming side of things. But we actually know that a lot of these are are, are influenced by significantly by the environments that people people live in. So the question is, if if you based on what you we know, based on what we knew before the pandemic in terms of the inequality of those conditions and their risk factors, based on what we know about how that's played out with the pandemic, if we were to uh, incorporate that into building population health resilience for the future, uh, proactively to address that vulnerability, what would your what would your advice be? Um, and what do you think would need to be done uh, to to address this head on? I think the key is to uh, have a prevention program um, for uh, those chronic diseases. Um, 
diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, they are um, due to uh, uh, risk factors such as physical inactivity, uh, diet. So I think provision and improvement in diet quality would certainly help. Uh, improving physical activity aspects, smoking, uh, we all know about overall smoking rates have decreased dramatically. Um, but physical activity, I think, uh, and, and you have expertise in that area in terms of uh, developing green space. So it's much easier for populations to exercise uh, access to uh, physical activity environments such as gym, making it uh, culturally appropriate. And again, you know, there are certain communities where they only need, they will only attend women only gyms, uh, swimming pools, etc. So all the, all of the, that kind of environments would help. Simple messaging. People do not need to go to a gym. People do not need to go for a run. Simple messaging of reducing sedentary activity. And that, again, is not getting out there. And possibly that's because of the way we're giving that message uh, may not be culturally uh, accessible to people. Now, I just ask, are there any other questions from very the panel? Quick, very quick one, if I may. Um, uh, uh, Kamlesh, you, you, you alluded to the fact that you know, I'm a neonatal intensivist, I'm an intensivist, and I, I perfectly can see that there is this interrelationship between uh, ethnicity, poverty, gender, and so on and so forth. And you very clearly said that the, the although um, the uh, ethnic minority communities in this country have fared worse than, uh, than the, their white counterparts, this is, uh, we've been relatively spared in comparison to some other countries. And you alluded to the fact that, of course, there is better access to healthcare here because we have a publicly provided um, healthcare system. The question is then, why do we still have these disparities? Because, of course, the NHS was founded in 1948. We've had 50-plus years of a public health care system. Why has our public health care system seemingly failed certain communities, amongst which are ethnic minorities? But we also heard from our previous witness, are women as well? Yeah. That's, a, again, a really complex area, um, and, and it could be at, at, a, at a number of levels. First of all, uh, the awareness of that population um, to, to the disease, um, uh, access to, uh, the, um, uh, to that disease. So in my area of diabetes, we still find that ethnic minorities do not get the new therapies um, that are available that are more likely to be cardioprotective. Now, we don't know the exact reasons, but that is a complex area, whether it's uh, access because of the uh, primary care practitioner that they're accessing, whether it's because they are not keen on taking that, all of that research hasn't been done. And then uh, there may be different pathophysiological mechanisms as well. Uh, that's really early in its infancy. And I'll just give you an example, um, chest pain, you know, it's, uh, ethnic minorities such as South Asians access uh, uh, ambulance call out much later than white populations when they get a heart attack. Um, now, we don't know the main reason. This could be cultural reasons, but they could be pathophysiological mechanisms where they're not feeling the pain in the same way as the white population is. So, so could I summarise, because we are looking for solutions to present to government, could, could I summarise it by asking you, would you say then that we really, we, we do have a 
an infrastructure that should be supportive of narrowing health inequities and health inequalities. But what we need to do now is set our sights on uh, ensuring that the research that is done also takes into account gender, poverty, ethnicity, race, all and so on. All of those things. All known characteristics need to be taken into account. And I think the way to look at this, we, we've learned a lot in a year. A lot of bad things have happened, but I think a lot of good things have happened in terms of where we are now compared to where we would have been. We would have been here talking about ethnic minority disparities if the COVID pandemic hadn't happened. But I think what we now to do is critically look at each touch point of where there are differences with those characteristics that you mentioned. So from a patient getting the symptoms or being screened, then being referred, how long they have to wait to be seen? Are there disparities there? Once they've been seen, how long is the, uh, is the follow-up? Are they being followed up as, as uh, appropriately as the other uh, ethnic minority groups? If they're waiting for a, a, a surgery, do you have uh, to wait longer if you have any of those characteristics? And once you discharge, is your follow-up uh, the same? I think at each touch point, we need to look at this and see where biggest biggest problems are and act on those. Thank you. Can I, can uh, I perhaps add to that, just for clarification, just to build on the prevention point, um, uh, that that would start before people became patients as well, okay. right? So that we look at inequalities around where where people are being pushed into, into ill health. I mean, Nina, uh, Tolu, you, you both work in research. I think what we need to now do is lobby funders because conducting research in ethnic minority population is more expensive. Um, if we are recruiting people, and we've been recruiting in the last of 30 years, it takes twice as long, twice as much effort, and the funders need to realize that. So the amount of funding we're asking for needs to be seen to be appropriate if we're working in that population. And you do need a lot more funding because you need the bilingual languages. You need uh, community workers to help recruit uh, the population. You need to work with the faith groups to recruit. It's not just straightforward as we do in normal studies where we just write a letter from a GP and expect patients to come forward. We've done this. In Cambridge, that letter goes out, 40% respond. In Leicester, we send the same letter and we get a 5% response rate. So we need to use different methodologies to recruit people to study. I'm just checking because there's no more questions. I don't think so. Well, may I thank you very much, but before you go, I'm afraid I've got a little uh, extra one. It may be that, again, it's one you can't answer, but it, as you answered some of these others very, very fully, <clears throat> what strikes me particularly, uh, and we may have to look at it as a panel, is what you've described the impact, in a sense, in your writings as well as your spoken word, of the, the inequalities and how that relates to the pandemic. But of course, underlying some of this is the question of discrimination itself. Now, is that, is that something you feel is outside your remit or somebody else can deal with it? I just don't know. I, I haven't studied discrimination in any of the work I've done, but structural discrimination certainly is an issue uh, underlying all of this. And this is pre-pandemic. 
Um, I mean, this is uh, basically uh, inequitable systems such as housing, education, employment, earnings, benefits, credit. All of this is structural discrimination that puts people at a disadvantage. Uh, ethnic minorities and non-ethnic minorities, but more so ethnic minorities. And and the, and you've had uh, Michael Marmot uh, on the panel here, and and that's the kind of work that he would have done, looking at the wider social determinants of health. Thank you. That's very clear. May I thank you very much for your time tonight, Professor, uh, and wish you well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pause uh, just for logistical matters. I'm not sure whether. We normally have a little break, and we do have a little break. Right. Well, I think now's the time to have it because there may be some visual aids for those of you are waiting for five minutes or however minutes there are. So I'll break off now for a few minutes. It's very important to stress that this is a uh, problem that I think is likely to become more significant for this country in the course of the next days and weeks. And... Uh, therefore, that we'd be making every possible preparation for that. And this country is very, very well prepared. Uh, we've agreed a fantastic NHS, fantastic testing systems, amazing surveillance of uh, the spread of, of disease. Uh, but we've also agreed a, a plan so that uh, as and when, if and when it starts to, to spread, as uh, I'm afraid it looks likely that it will, we are in a position to take the steps that uh, will be necessary to, uh, will be reasonable, will be possible, uh, to contain the spread of the disease, and uh, as far as we can, and also to protect the most vulnerable. And uh, we'll be developing that plan or announcing the, the details of that plan, not just tomorrow, but in the course of the, of the days and, and weeks ahead. I've done it again. I thought I'd unmuted, but I'll do it again. That's fine. I did predict that I might. Well, there we go. I'm going to call the, and then welcome back, the next witness, Dr. Latifa Patel, please. Yes. Are you sitting comfortably? I am, thank you. <laughs> all right. Now, I'm <clears throat> first of all, obviously going to introduce uh, you as a person, your deputy chair, of the representative body of the British Medical Association, uh, and you're also the BMA, and I don't like using this term, as we've just dealt with the last witness, the BAME Forum member. However, since it's being used, I will. And you're, in fact, I mean, important as all that is, you're actually a frontline doctor. So you have experience of all kinds. And in fact, what I'm going to ask you has been, in a sense, predicated by the last witness which you may have heard because I think you've been listening. Uh, it, it arose first in relation to PPE and protective gear, uh, particularly affecting NHS staff. Um, but we've heard evidence in previous uh, hearings about the predicaments of NHS staff, black or white, who are feeling demoralized and feeling under threat. But of course, in relation to the ethnic minority groups, it's, it's probably had a, an even worse effect. So I wanted to start by asking you, because uh, of the work that you do, what has been the impact in two, for two groups? They're related, but they're, on the one hand, there's the NHS staff, the impact of the 
pandemic on NHS staff, particularly the ethnic minority groups, and also patients themselves and the public who are being treated by those members of staff. Now, they're two different groups, but maybe some of the issues are the same for both. So could, could you take um, the people you represent first and deal with them? I'm going to stop you. I'm sorry about this. It's uh, this isn't my fault, as opposed to the me. Uh, I'm not unmuting, but the sound quality is is not good. Uh, I, we can go on, but I don't. It doesn't do you. It does you a disservice to be muffled. If you you know what I mean? Can you? No. We can struggle on. It's just you, you may have to speak a little more distinctly and a little more slowly. Uh, I'm going to pause. Let me, let me change to a different microphone, really. Sorry. Yeah, we can wait while you do it. Yeah. Is that any better? Terrific. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much. I, I'm so point. sorry to interrupt. So no, you're, you're dealing with the effect on NHS staff. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much for pointing that out. And I do apologise to anyone at home listening to that and hearing my muffled tones. Um, so you, I am a senior leader at BMA, you're right. Um, I, and the, 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 two, the two issues are very intrinsically linked. I'm going to make references to lots of surveys that the BMA have done, and they've been surveying, surveying throughout the pandemic. We know going into the pandemic that the minority ethnic group doctors have had a very specific need and very specific disparities that set them out from their uh, white counterparts. So going into the pandemic, we already knew that they were more at risk of bullying, more at risk of discrimination, more at risk of harassment. We already knew that this was a group that was the quietest, so they, they were least likely to raise these issues. Going into the pandemic, if they did raise these issues, they were also least likely to be heard or, or their concerns to be acted upon. Now, if you take this group then going into the pandemic, and we know as a whole, the NHS was underprepared for the pandemic. Um, I, I know you made reference to, to PPE. I can quote some figures in terms of PPE shortages that we had um, in one of the surveys that the BMA did. Um, you know, masks shortages were 36 to 43 percent. We were shortages. There were shortages on gloves. There were shortages on scrubs. There were shortages on visors. And these weren't just on the front line. These were also where, where you know, further in the back when you had aerosol generating procedures. Now, if you have a minority ethnic doctor facing these concerns, knowing that prior to the pandemic, they were least likely to raise these concerns, that just then multiplies. So now going into the pandemic, you're, you're short of your equipment. You're not really likely to raise your concerns, knowing full well that you're not going to be heard. So uh, could you then deal, I'll come back to some of the answers you've just given, but could you also deal with the, the other group of you know, the, the, the ethnic minority patients and the difficulties they've had in getting treatment and what are those difficulties? Absolutely. So again, going into the pandemic, we know and we've got King's Fund data from only a couple of years ago, there's multiple sources of data that minority ethnic patients, the population, again, have very specific needs. And they've also felt disparities. So they report poor experiences accessing healthcare, accessing the NHS, and they also have poorer health outcomes. 
Now, I always like to think when you're thinking about how you communicate with your patients, you should try and aim it at the most disadvantaged and make that your baseline. We know that didn't happen. We know that communication throughout this pandemic from the government has been wholly unacceptable. Now, if me and you can't get that information across, how do you expect somebody who was already at a disadvantage and already facing difficulties being communicated to? If we take the way the NHS went into virtual consultation, so it was expedited exponentially, and we've now moved to a way where virtual platforms are, are almost the norm. They didn't cater to minority ethnic groups and lower income families particularly well. In fact, they, they almost discriminated against them. You needed a really good Wi-Fi connection. You needed a good understanding of, of, of English, which we know not everybody does have. You needed a good microphone. You needed a, a high pixelated camera. Now, if prior to the pandemic, you needed translating services to access healthcare, and those were suddenly lost because, of course, we went into lockdown. Making things such as simply making things like appointments were a lot harder. And when you did access appointments on that virtual platform, again, the, the middle person, the translation services weren't there at the very start. So, so communication itself was wholly unacceptable, but actually it was even further unacceptable and made those disparities even further greater for families from minority ethnic groups. Uh, mobile phones, do they come into this at all? Oh, absolutely. We can, we can talk about mobile phones. So suddenly the NHS went fully electronic and the way we were communicating to our patients, even letters sort of stopped or, or were reduced and we were using mobile phones. Well, we don't have all our mobile phone numbers for all our patients. And, and where we couldn't get hold of them, these patients were being discharged, discharged prematurely. But of course, we didn't always have their mobile phone numbers. And some people change their mobile phone numbers more often. We know that people from lower income families have pay-as-you-go contracts more than they have 12 monthly contracts. And they're more likely to change their number. So actually, whilst we were trying to get in touch with families um, using mobile phone numbers, we weren't able to. And these families were actually being prematurely discharged from services when they shouldn't have done. I want to ask you, it, it's something I hadn't, until I read uh, your words, I hadn't really thought about it, but I should have done. And that is, even if you've got some kind of satisfactory Wi-Fi or connection or whatever, and you are reached by your GP, uh, th there's a problem at the patient's end in the sense that if they're living in, in uh, multi-occupancy situations in which maybe an extended family, I don't know, there's a risk that how are you going to have a private consultation if you haven't got anywhere to have it? Oh, absolutely. And this was, uh, this, as you quite rightly point out, this, is, this was a big issue for multi-generation homes. And, and no doubt why people did not attend appointments. Appointments are meant to be private. If you can't find even a simple corner, I mean, you know, patients were making phone calls in cars, they were making phone calls in toilets and bathrooms. It shouldn't have been that way. But space is a privilege. And our whole motto for how we dealt with um, the pandemic was a privilege. Not everybody could afford the, the space in the home to even make consultations, the space in the home, as it's already been um, commented before, to isolate from, from um, people in their, in their family, extended family, who might be living with them. Now, you've, you've, you've described, therefore, the, the difficulties 
some of them seemingly insurmountable, facing both staff working within the NHS and then the patients being dealt with uh, as far as they can be within the NHS system as it is now. So I'm going to take it in stages. First of all, has the BMA, either through you or anyone else, made extensive representations to government about this? And then the second part is, if you have, what's the response? Oh, absolutely. So I'm, I'm actually here in my personal capacity, um, though I can't not reference the, the BMA because I'm so intrinsically linked with it. But the BMA has been campaigning ruthlessly for the last for the last 12 months, right from the beginning, the BMA asked for. And it was Chan Nagpal, um, Dr. Chan Nagpal, the GP, our chair of council, who, who wrote to the government and said, we need thorough risk assessments. We need them to be easily accessible and we need them to be rolled out. We need them to be acted on. We also raised concerns throughout the pandemic and continue to do so about our protective equipment of frontline staff. We've also um, looked into how our minority ethnic group doctors are particularly affected uh, by the pandemic and we've asked for further answers and more than that, we've asked for action. Um, I think, you know, it's quite obvious to us all that despite all the asks, we're, we're, we're not where we should be, we're not where we want to be. Um, but we, we continue to ask for, for all of those things. So is the summary answer, in a sense, that government really hasn't responded again? I think, I think, like many things in the pandemic, we should have done better, and the government hasn't responded to the level that we would like to like them to have responded, the level at which we'd feel safest, the level at which we'd be most protected. Do you feel at the moment that there's any movement towards change here? And obviously, if you fit... You know, the following question would be, what is the movement that you want to see to take you to the place you want to be in? So it's two parts, really. But is there any movement by government at all? So if I look at the questions that you'd ask me initially about doctors from a minority ethnic background, do I think they feel safer? Do I think they feel safer on the front line? Well, we only have to look at the mortality and morbidity data for health and social care staff throughout this. And we are still seeing a, a disproportionate number of people from minority ethnic groups uh, that are dying. Um, and we're seeing a disproportionate number that are ending up more unwell, unwell than um, their white counterparts. So I don't think from that stance, because that's our measure, that's our objective, that people should feel safer and they should feel more protected. Certainly with the vaccine, that's different. Um, there has been improvement. But if we look at it from a risk assessment point of view and, and making people feel more protected, I'm not, I'm not sure we have um, really got on top of that. I mean, has the government engaged in risk assessment of its own? Elaborate on that. Sorry. Yeah. In other words, if we've got a situation now, because we've had members of staff in previous sessions, one of which was, was talking about, one witness was talking about what she called moral injury. But what it actually comes to is we have a situation for NHS staff whereby they feel they don't feel any safer than they did before. They also feel in a sense, unsupported, whatever people have done with saucepans outside their front door. They, they are now feeling, particularly in relation to pay rises and protection and so on, uh, and that there's a feeling amongst staff, and I just want to ask you this, you know, whether the BMA, I, I suspect, are aware of it, where people actually don't want to go on anymore. 
Absolutely. I mean, only recently the BMA raised data, uh, released data to the media and raised it with the government that we've got a record number of um, NHS staff who are, who are reporting burnout, poor well-being, mental and emotional concerns, and also talking about leaving the NHS. And this has been a common theme throughout the pandemic. Um, it will get to fruition and we will we'll reach the point of no return. And we've been trying to raise that concern with the government to look at sustainable ways of, of keeping the NHS going. Right. So then I come to the second part. What are, in your view, what are the sustainable ways in which you can keep it going, particularly for the ethnic minorities? So the, the, the stance I see from the government repeatedly is that we're recruiting more doctors, we're recruiting more medical students, we're, you know, we're recruiting more nurses. What we need to be concentrating is on retention. We need to make staff feel safe. We need to make staff feel valued. There's something simple like risk assessments, which we asked for 12 months ago. We're 12 months into the pandemic. And only of the recent survey did we find that only 50% of doctors are saying they've been risk assessed. Surely that's not a big ask to be risk assessed at work. The greatest proportion is within the minority ethnic group population. There's about a 10-15% difference between the white counterpart and, uh, and the minority ethnic doctors in terms of how well they've been risk assessed and of course once you are risk effect risk assessed we need to make sure that that is acted on so if it is no longer safe for you to be on the front line and you can't offer that service have you been given an alternative role i'm going to ask a question i asked the last witness but it's it's going to be a theme a bit but i, I am interested in whether you or the bma or both uh, you've been talking, we've been talking about staff at the moment, not uh, less so patients, but uh, the government has a legal obligation to provide a safe working environment. And that's a statutory obligation. Is that something that the BMA or you or both are looking at their legal obligations or is it something, you know, it's, it's, you know, what's needed, but you're not looking at the legal ramifications of what they're not doing. Um, I'm, I'm going to be honest there, Michael, that, that's not my expertise. So rather than say things I'm not quite sure on. Um, I, I, I'm oh, don't worry too much about that, because we'll assess if it's not right. But, but I just thought I'd ask, because I'm concerned to see whether the legal framework that we've got in place, nobody refers to it, or hardly ever. And so as far as you're concerned, it's not something that's, as it were, on the table or run across your... I, I am pretty sure it is on the table. I'm just not. I'm just not fully informed on it. No, okay, I'm fine. Fully informed enough to explain it to to those who are listening. Okay, fine. Now I'm going to open it up to the panel for other questions, please. Yes, Doctor Davis. Um, hi, Latifa. Thank you for being along today. Um, it's, it's a slightly looking forward a bit, you know, I know from my own hospital that there's a real problem with vaccine hesitation amongst minority ethnic groups as the staff, but also amongst the general population. And we know that the thing has been really bad. Have you got um, any ideas about how the government could improve this? Because clearly, you know, while we have large chunks of the population who are hesitant to be vaccinated, it, it, it's a problem for everyone. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think vaccine hesitancy... Um, to really understand it, we need to look at the position that minority ethnic population was at before the pandemic. 
There were already concerns. There were already disparities. There was a lack of trust. And you can understand with some of the governmental policies that we've had regarding Brexit and immigration, why there'd be a lack of trust. If you look at what's happened with the Windrus generation, etc., that you could really understand why minority ethnic people feel that mistrust against the against the government. Looking at the NHS, I mean, the disparities that we have, I know full well that if a, if a black woman goes into labour, she's associated with more risks. I know throughout the pandemic, um, black people were still more at risk than um, followed closely by Asian people. So we already know that this, those disparities exist, and that would make it understandable why people would have mistrust with the NHS. If you can't treat us in the same way and have the same success rates as, as white people, why then should we conform and, and do what you say? Um, in terms of how we make it better, well, we need to make access better. We need to make communication better. We need to make understanding better. I've said this before, but if we try to aim at our communications, at those who are most disadvantaged, that should be our baseline. That should be how we target the population. Then we can try and ensure that we're, we're communicating in the same way to everyone. We know full well that our communication strategies, the government's communication strategies, haven't done that. We know full well that um, when virtual consultations came out, they weren't targeting all, um, all populations equally. Those who didn't speak English as a first language, even now, e-consults to um, make appointments with your, your GP are in English. So if you're having difficulties simply going over that first hurdle, um, of course you're going to have mistrust and of course you're going to have hesitancy. Um, how we work on trust, how we work is, is something that's going to take a long time. What we can do imminently is work on access, is work on communication and is work on understanding um, and making all of those factors better. Are there any other questions, please? Oh, right, Professor. Uh, thank you very much, Latifa. Uh, um, inequity takes many forms, and and on the panelists, uh, among the panelists this evening, we've been we've been hearing about this. You've spoken very powerfully about the inequities experienced by ethnic minorities, but I'd be interested to hear your views and the, indeed the views of the BMA or the actions, not the views, the actions of the BMA in relation to addressing other inequities. For example, those which have been experienced by women those which have been experienced by um, uh, very, very, uh, from, from groups from lower socioeconomic demographics. C could you tell us a little bit about the BMA's um, representations for these groups, please? Okay, so, so I'll comment on a few of those, and you might have to remind me what you said again. Sorry, Professor, because it's quite a long question. Um, but if we look at women, certainly we've been campaigning um, for the disparities that women have faced. If you look within the NHS, 77% of NHS staff are women. It's a staggering number. Yet from the offset in terms of how we were protected, our face masks, our gloves, our aprons, all of those were geared for men. So going into the pandemic, we weren't protected, and the BMA has been campaigning for this. If you then take an, an element um, for, for women, in, in, for female patients, for women patients, um, maternity care, the way maternity care was delivered and the way um, appointments were suddenly expected that you can't take partners, you can't have the support of your family and friends. So women going through pregnancy had all of their appointments on their own. Some women even gave birth on their own. So a life-changing event. And both of these areas are which the BMA has been campaigning and working 
on um, proactively to ensure that there is equity throughout. Um, remind me of the other parts of the question. No, the, the, the other group that is very disadvantaged and where there are very striking in health inequities are, of course, those from the poorer socioeconomic demographics. Um, and they too, uh, and I guess what I'm coming to is that inequities are, are still rampant within our, health inequities are rampant within our societies. And it would be very, very powerful, I think, to bring together the um, actions, the mitigating actions that apply across all of these groups, accepting, of course, that there are going to have, there's going to have to be some cutting of cloth to solve individual problems. But uh, the message that seems to be emerging is that uh, all, sort, all forms of, of inequities are very, very prevalent. And if there's one thing that COVID has done, it's been to sadly exacerbate those for all of these groups that we've, we've been speaking about. Absolutely. And in terms of inequity that, you know, many areas of the population, including those from lower income families face, these are these are elements and policies that the BMA has been working on for, for decades. And we've got policies going back a long time. Um, you're absolutely right. We, the NHS has 1.4 million staff and we see 1 million um, patient contacts every 36 hours. All of those inequities, when they're coupled together and multiplied, become huge. And those disparities, which might have been only minor, become massive. And we need to really look, going through the pandemic and coming out of it, how we improve them. Because if we face them again, it's only going to be worse. You're absolutely right. We've shown a massive light on what's been happening. I'm going to thank you very much at this stage. We have one more witness to call, and thank you for your time and wishing you well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, following Dr. Patel, the last witness tonight is Alia Yule, please. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we'll pause just to make sure we can see you and hear you. I think at the moment you're in very good communication. Oh, you keep moving around my screen that's wonderful <laughs> i've now got you right um uh, first of all just to indicate uh, what you do and your connection with obviously why you're here uh, you're you have an association a close association uh, with migrants organized which is the banner we've seen uh, on the screen already uh, and in particular uh, to healthcare and access to healthcare uh, for migrants, and you're an organiser in relation to that. I get some initial questions. First of all, how long have you been associated with this group? Uh, so I work at Migrants Organised, and I've worked there since 20, the end of 2019, uh, as you say, as the Access to Healthcare Migrant Organiser. Um, and so we're Migrants Organisers, a charity based in uh, West London, uh, and we support uh, we support around 500 migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and, and people without status during the pandemic. And sort of predominantly in my work, I focus on the Patients Not Passports campaign, which uh, is designed to draw attention to uh, the impact of the hostile environment in the NHS, uh, a little bit about which I will talk this evening. Uh, and I work with our with our members at Migrants Organise uh, who have been directly impacted by hostile environment policies to sort of raise awareness of what's going on, to advocate for themselves, to build campaigns uh, against the policies which have you know, adversely impacted them. Yes, that's very copious. Thank you. Uh, this is, I think, you're the first witness we've had in this area. So I'm, I'm going to take it a little more slowly, if you don't mind. 
uh, and un unusually, although people always accuse me of giving evidence when I shouldn't be really, but I think as a little introduction, because you use important um, terms and references, which some people may not be totally familiar with, and patients, not passports, hostile environment. Now, hostile environment, if I may just it's an introduction to the questions I want to ask, is a particular political term coined and employed by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary. It had a very explicit purpose, and still does, but I'll come to that with you in a moment. Explicit purpose of discouraging people from coming in the first place and remaining if they do get here, and encouraging an environment in which their presence is questioned. Now, of course, at that stage, it did result in some considerable dismay and concern that such a policy should be introduced. So what they did was they changed the terms so it wouldn't look quite so confrontational. Uh, and so they don't talk about illegal immigrants anymore. They talk about irregular migrants instead of illegal ones. And, and also in relation to the, the policy as a whole, uh, they, they've changed the word. In other words, they don't use the hostile environment anymore. They use the word compliant. So what they've done is they've changed the terms. They've got the legislation in place because one of the questions that have been sent in is to do with whether they're still doing it. Well, they are with the help of two statutes, Immigration Acts 2014, 2016. Now, these are both, as it were, perpetuating uh, this high level of uh, scrutiny towards people who've come for sanctuary in, in, in many cases. There are obviously other cases, but the majority come for sanctuary. And you're dealing with that group, and you've already helpfully answered the question, at least 500 people you're helping. But I, what I'd like you to describe is, because you've got some very fine examples, if I may say so, in your statement of what happens to what you've called it the undocumented uh, and perhaps you could define the undocumented as a definition so uh, can you deal with what happens to those who are undocumented or even those who have documents and finally get citizenship sure so uh, sort of the use of the term undocumented migrants refers to quite a broad category of migrants. There are lots of different ways in which somebody can uh, become undocumented. Uh, a recent JTWI report actually uh, shows that the majority of people who are undocumented, which is what you know the government and often the right-wing press refer to as illegal migrants, uh, usually have come having uh, on a legal basis uh, with a visa through another means, um, and then have become undocumented uh, through a, you know another process. They're unable to pay for uh, the regularization of their status. Uh, they came claiming asylum, and that that application was refused, uh, and so on. So there are lots of different ways uh, someone came on a domestic workers visa for example and they uh, then when they were no longer unemployed they were no longer employed so they become undocumented um, and the if there are estimates of around uh, of the, the undocumented population in the UK is from about 800,000 to 1.2 million people um, but it, it, it really varies um, and the hostile environment policies in fact 
affect uh, a far greater uh, range of people, um, including, you know, anyone who does have uh, immigration status, does have a visa, but perhaps that visa is uh, particularly insecure due to uh, it being tied to a family member, a spouse, or to their employment and the requirement of them being employed in this country. Um, but, you know, for people who are asylum seekers who uh, may be refused but then have the right to appeal. And so in this way, they kind of fall in and out of uh, uh, regularity of having uh, having immigration status. So kind of it's a very broad group of, of people um, to whom it kind of this category refers. Um, but, you know, exactly as you were saying, the hostile environment is a sort of whole suite of policies that affects a whole range uh, of, of sectors um, and, you know, of services that people need to live any kind of uh, dignified, normal life. Uh, and suddenly you become, when you interact with these services, you then become subject to having your immigration status checked. Um, so by virtue of, you know, uh, going to uh, using the NHS, uh, of having trying to open a bank account, of trying to get a driving license. Uh, we've seen, you know, the right to rent scheme, which demands landlords conduct passport checks on 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 renters. Um, that people are not allowed, don't have the right to work, and um, employers have to run uh, immigration status checks. So really, the hostile environment, you know, it, it makes life incredibly difficult for people who don't have the right immigration papers. And as we know, this affects you know, not just those who uh, don't have uh, legal status, but can affect people who are unable to prove that they have legal status, such as those from, you know, the Windrush scandal. So it's it's a it's a really broad group of people who are actually impacted by, by the hostile environment. Not to mention um, that the way that a lot of the, the policies work is by, you know, demanding that a landlord, a, uh, you know, someone in the NHS, working in the NHS, uh, you know, uh, whoever else, uh, you know, your employer, they are the ones who are running the checks on immigration status. And they, you know, who who are they checking? Who is it, who are the people that they ask uh, to prove their immigration status? What we often see is that that's a racialized process. We see, for example, in the NHS, overseas vis visitors managers who are tasked with checking people's status, running, uh, you know, uh, looking at the bedboards in the hospital that day. Uh, this is someone has admitted that this is how they do it, and they will highlight the foreign-sounding names on the bedboard and then go to those people and check them, uh, ask them to prove their entitlement to free NHS. We know that um, landlords, for example, do a similar thing where they just will refuse to rent to people that they think uh, might uh, not have uh, immigration status or because they think it's going to be more hassle than it's worth having to ask someone to, you know, uh, provide their passport and so on. I have friends, for example, who, uh, you know, use in more English sounding names uh, when they uh, try and rent somewhere precisely because they don't want to have to go through these kinds of checks. So actually, it's a really wide group of people um, that are affected by hostile environment policies. Well, I'm going to pick up on the English sounding name. I hope the name I'm going to use isn't a name that's going to be difficult. It's the name of a famous singer, American, um, rock and roll. Um, probably you know who I'm talking about. If there's no problem about his name, then I'm sure you will use it. But I mean, could you just tell his story? Because it is... And there's one other as well, which is most moving and draconian. So perhaps you could just spell it out. What happened to this individual? Yeah. So the way that the hostile environment works, particularly in the NHS, is by charging some migrants up to 150% of the cost of care, um, uh, according to a very complex set of rules and exemptions. But it also includes uh, uh, for instances of non-urgent treatment requiring payment up front. Uh, so that means, you know, if you 
if you can't pay, you're not going to get the treatment. Um, but also um, that the NHS shares patient data with the Home Office, particularly around debts accrued um, due to, you know, needing treatment. Uh, and if you have a debt to the NHS, your future immigration applications can be prejudiced. Um, and many uh, hospitals also use data um, debt collection agencies to chase migrants who have these debts. Um, uh, and because of all of these policies, it leads to people being incredibly fearful of coming forward for healthcare. Uh, and the person that you're referring to uh, is a was a man named El, uh, known as Elvis, uh, who was part of the Filipino community in London. He was a cleaner. Um, he had lived uh, and worked in the UK for over 10 years and lived here with his wife, um, sending money back to the family in the Philippines. Um, but at the, uh, in April of last year, uh, Elvis died alone at home um, of suspected coronavirus. He had all symptoms of coronavirus, but he had not sought any treatment, any, he hadn't even called 111, um, you know, even when uh, community members were urging him to, because he was so fearful that he didn't have immigration status and that if he presented to the Home Office, he could potentially uh, become, no yeah, sorry, to the NHS, but he could become known to the Home Office, um, or that his wife could, and that they could be subject to detention, to immigration detention, and to potential deportation. And for them, that risk was not worth it. For him, it, that risk was not worth it. And so he suffered alone at home, and he he unfortunately died. Um, a similar uh, story uh, comes from a, a Lebanese man who's also uh, pseudonym of Ayman, um, who had come to the UK about two years ago. He had been detained in Brook House. Uh, he had uh, managed with the help of a migrant charity to uh, get out of Brook House. Uh, he was then learning English and volunteering in, in London. Um, and he also got, he got, had symptoms of coronavirus. And again, uh, there were many in his community and family back in Lebanon urging him to, to put himself forward for healthcare, to go to hospital, um, access testing and treatment for coronavirus but again he was so fearful that he would either land with a huge debt to the NHS that he would be unable to pay because he had no right to work in the country um, and that, that he would you know have this debt that he wouldn't then be able to regularize his visa that he he didn't come forward for healthcare and he he also unfortunately died and this is something that we see amongst our members at Migrants Organize and with a number of uh, uh, migrant organisations that we work with across the country who report that people are so fearful of coming forward for healthcare, um, or when they try and come forward for healthcare, are asked to prove their immigration status, uh, which you know often they can't do, and so people stop trying, people stop stop coming forward for healthcare, and that has been devastating during the pandemic. In fact, they're entitled to free care, are they not? Yes. So, so, you know, one of the things with the charging regulations is that there are exemptions for certain types of illnesses and coronavirus is one of the, you know, is exempt. Um, there were, you know, urges at the government at the beginning of the pandemic to really make this clear to people, but it, it, it sort of wasn't publicised particularly clearly. And also because uh, the rest of the charging regulations still remained in effect. If you had any, kind, you know, comorbidities or anything, and if you went for treatment for coronavirus, but then something else needed to be treated, it, was, it wasn't very clear, and it's still not very clear, whether or not people would get charged for that other thing, um, at, you know, and, but without the coronavirus uh, treatment. Um, and so people 
just weren't just aren't weren't coming aren't coming forward for for healthcare. It's not really possible to have a health system in which you have some parts that are chargeable and some parts that are not, and be able to kind of communicate that to people uh, clearly. And particularly at this, when at the same time you have this system of sharing patient data with the Home Office sitting behind it. So meaning that even when testing treatment, you know, is free for people, there is still this fear of coming forward. You know, lest you might make yourself subject to immigration enforcement as a result. And I want to take up one other case because these examples are telling. Uh, in this particular case, um, I think there's no name, and I'm not going to obviously try to do that, but it's, it's somebody who's a black British member of um, your group who was in a COVID-19 induced coma. Yeah. And he, his family was sent a letter. Could you just explain that one, please? Yeah, so he uh, he was a, a black British man um, who uh, needed uh, you know treatment for coronavirus. He had kidney failure, and he had he was in a he was in an induced coma. Um, but whilst he was in hospital, uh, he his family were sent a letter, a quite threatening letter, as these letters often are, that said um, you need to provide evidence of your eligibility for free NHS care within um, seven days. You know, to do this, you need to require we require six months of um, you know proof of address or bank statements or and so on. Um, and without which we will start charging you for your treatment. Um, he had gained British citizenship. He'd lived in the country for, I think, over a decade. Um, and he had gained citizenship two years or a year prior to this incident. And this is despite um, the government having said that nobody should be checked for uh, COVID uh, for COVID-related treatment. Um, and yet what we're seeing is uh, people still being sent these very threatening letters. And, you know, thankfully his, his family were able to say, well, you know, we, we can provide this, but why is it necessary? He's in for COVID treatment, which is supposed to be free. So why do we have to show his eligibility for free NHS care? But also the family were quite clear that this was, this, this seemed like racial profiling. Why was this man singled out and him sent a letter? The response that they received from the hospital at the time was that it was an automated system and that everybody was receiving these letters. But I, you know, we, what we know is that it's very clear that not, not everybody receives a letter asking them to prove their eligibility for free NHS care. It does seem to be, uh, you know, we're, quite frankly, we're not sure who gets the letters, but there's some element of racial profiling going on behind it. I want to ask you, uh, and it's really a genuine question in the sense that I, it's not, I don't think it's mentioned in your statement, but the public will have seen at least this on television, namely the conditions in which some, um, some migrants are held in detention. And the one that got a lot of publicity is one in Kent, the Napier Barracks, but there, there are ones in Wales as well. Uh, do, do you have any... Uh, uh, contact with those yeah we do actually so a number of our members and uh are part of organizing groups uh in in the barracks who have you know formed the potential union saying that the conditions that they are being subject to are so outrageous um the majority of people who are being housed there are asylum seekers um for many of them it is re-traumatizing to be held in military style barracks 
uh, which are not fit for use. Uh, the conditions there are completely unsanitary. There is uh, very little uh, possibility for people to socially distance or isolate from each other. Um, it's very difficult for people inside the barracks to access um, GP services when they are ill. Many of them have ongoing mental health problems that they need support with and um, very few receive that. Um, but also there have been outbreaks of, of, of COVID in the barracks and that has been little to any support for people when that has happened there hasn't been any space provided for people to isolate and so you have uh you have covid sort of ripping through uh, uh and again without people being able to uh, access uh healthcare uh, essentially um the government had said that they were going to uh uh get people out and stop people housing people there but that's not what we're seeing we're see seeing people still being housed uh, in the barracks what sort of numbers are involved in the, the Napier barracks, I think they're called? I think there are several uh, hundred at a time who are housed there, um, but I'm not, I'm not too sure. No, all right. Um, my final question, and I'm going to ask the panel if they have any more, is to ask you whether in these uh, huge hurdles that you have to get over to get it, uh, do you feel any progress is being made in terms of persuading government to act differently? Not really, no. If anything, the you know recently announced new plan for immigration uh, demonstrates a government which is committed to being even more hostile to to migrants, particularly to uh, you know asylum seekers, and saying essentially that people, unless people arrive here through legal routes, not that the government is. Uh, committed to providing any more legal routes uh, that people are able you know by which people are able to arrive here that they will you know further criminalize um, people who arrive here so-called illegally um, that they will subject those people to even worse and harsher and stricter conditions um, than there already are um, so it's you know it's very difficult to see this government as being anything other than extremely hostile if not more hostile than it's already been towards um towards people who try and, try and move here um this is despite you know the growing number of mps cross-party mps who have called for the end to various parts of the hostile environment including in the nhs and including through the pandemic where people have been urging the government you know across civil society um you know again cross party mps saying that it's not it's not possible to have an effective public health response uh when you have people subject to such degrading uh conditions now, thank you for those answers. I'm just going to ask in the final minutes of today whether any other panel members have a question for you. Yes, Professor. Thank you very much, Alia. What, what you've said has been, has been very distressing, but you live with it every day in your, in your job. Um, so I'd, I'd like to ask you a reflective question. Why, what, what is the purpose? Why, why, why should we have a hostile environment? Given your experience uh, in your work, your day-to-day -day lived experience in your work, what are your reflections on why we have a hostile environment? So it's a great question, and I yeah tear my hair out often. I have no idea. I mean, you know, many reports that. <laughs> recently uh, made a report that even according to but you know by the government's own logic of saying that this is about trying to get fewer people to come here and people self-deport essentially um that it's fate it's not working the hostile environment isn't um you know meaning that fewer people try and seek sanctuary here or that people remove themselves faster um 
you know, that, so by their own logic, it doesn't work. Um, I think, and you know, in light of that, I think what's clear is that this is really about uh, scapegoating a group of people, uh, essentially, you know, laying uh, it. It, making migrants to blame for the erosion of our public services and the defunding of our public services by saying it's those people who come here who steal our hospital beds, who steal our school places, who steal our jobs, um, by sort of blaming the most marginalised and making it then extremely difficult for those people to speak out about what is happening to them. Um, you know, it, it, it creates a group upon which the government can sort of blame uh, their problems. I mean, for example, in the NHS, uh, which is, you know, I, I focus on it, so I have particularly interest there, but it's it's almost, uh, it's a way of shooing in privatisation through the back door by essentially saying, we're going to test out this system of charging some people for this service, with, you know, this wonderful thing, which is supposed to be free for everybody at the point of use, you know, for all who need it. But actually saying, actually, we're going to test out trialing, charging some people, the group of people we think of as, you know, vulnerable and people aren't going to stand up for their rights and their, their rights are very difficult to defend. And actually, by doing this, what that we now have in place is a system by which the NHS is sort of ready and able to start charging everybody else as well. Um, and it's a way of sort of, you know, testing the waters with the rest of the public about, you know, will people accept uh, a health system that is not based actually on need, but is maybe based a little bit on, you know, ability to pay. And by sort of, you know, we start with migrants and then we roll it out across the rest of the population. I think, I think that's part of the kind of government logic of it. Um, but I, I really do think that this, this, it is about scapegoating. It is about uh, creating a group of, of, of you know, so-called criminals that they can pin um, government failure on, um, as opposed to having to reflect on, on their own. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Rennie. Thank you for that, yes, very disturbing indeed um, uh, statement. I want to pick up on the point that you mentioned in your in your witness statement, in your written statement, and um, pick up on the previous witness as well. Because of course we're talking about mig the migrant population in general. There's also the the added dimension of migrants working within an NHS that is understaffed and very much in need of of healthcare workers, um, and you mentioned something in your in your statement about you know th those. NHS workers also being subject to the same similar levels of discrimination and and actually being being charged charged doubly if you like for the NHS. So um, could you maybe speak to that dimension as well because I think it is important to, to cut across the spectrum of of the migrant population as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, often I think this refers to the immigration health surcharge, which is a kind of other part of the hostile environment that I haven't really talked about in the NHS, which is essentially a sort of double tax on migrant workers by saying, um, you know, you're going to pay uh, through your, you know, your ta the taxes, your taxes, um, but you also, at the point of applying for a visa, have to pay this thing called the immigration health surcharge, um, which is uh, uh, just gone up to £624 per person per year, um, but has to be paid in its entirety with a visa application so if you are applying um, as a family of four say I can't do that quick maths um, but for a visa of two and a half years it can you know mean that your visa cost is something like four thousand six thousand pounds um, on top of the cost of the actual visa um, that's just to pay for, the, for your health care um, 
Uh, and it means it means essentially that that for many people, many families, that they they simply cannot afford to pay. We've seen instances of nurses, for example, who work in the NHS who cannot afford for their children also uh, to to pay the immigration health surcharge, and so end up having to be split up from from their children. Um, but you know this it, it happens right across uh, you know all work all migrant uh, workers who who come into the countries, not just those who are working in the NHS. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, absolutely, as you say, it's sort of, it is this rate as double tax uh, on migrants that have to pay to use the NHS, which I think, you know, for those who are then also working in it uh, and without whom the NHS couldn't really function, it is uh, really staggeringly awful. Any other questions from anyone tonight? No. Well, I want to thank you very much. And Again, in one sense, I think it's important that you should recognise that, uh, and you probably do, that you, as a, as a supporter and worker, are not the only one. I think Lorna and I, Lorna Hackett having the counsel to the inquiry, she can't speak tonight, but I'll speak on her behalf. And Namely, uh, you may be aware that uh, it's not just the migrants who are being attacked. Those who defend them are also being attacked. And the Home Secretary attacked activist lawyers. Activism. And it wasn't long after that attack, which has been maintained and not withdrawn, that a, a, a lawyer, I'm not going to give the name of the lawyer, in London, the offices were attacked in the sense that individuals in the office were, uh, were attacked by a man carrying a knife and with um, neo-Nazi flags and so on and he, he, he was arrested but this we say as lawyers anyway is all part of the similar situation which you've described tonight so I thought you, you should know if you didn't that you know you are supported but there are people under threat just as much as they are and that's how hostile the environment still is but thank you for coming thank you very much for having me I pass you back to Sonia who will finish the evening with a few words. Thank you, Michael. Um, thank you to our brilliant panel and thank you to all the witnesses that participated today. Um, and thank you for watching and getting involved. I hope you found that last this session as um, informative and interesting as I did. You, the, you can watch back the session. Please do, if you can, share it on your social media so you can get more people watching these events. Um, and if you can, we do have a crowdfunder, but if you can, please donate to our crowdfunder so we can raise more money to organise things like this. The information about how to donate will be in the chat, and you can also have a look at the website www.peoplescovidinquiry.com, where there's more information and you can also see what reports are being published. Next session is going to be on the 19th of May, and it's going to be on the privatisation of the people's health. Um, so thank you again. Thank you to the panel. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to all the witnesses and thank you and good night. <laughs>